Hello and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Your home for Irish folklore, mythology and all things storytelling. Hello everyone, you are almost assuredly welcome to episode 73 of the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. I am, of course, Paddy Holly, and I am joined by the marvellous, the splendiferous, the artistically underappreciated um, Mr. Brendan Atkins. How are you today, Brendan? I'm doing good, Paddy. How are you doing? Ah, you know, pulling the devil by the coattails, <laughs> hanging in there. <laughs> We're very busy at the moment, I suppose you could say, uh, with the with the new museum opening very very soon getting everything into place uh some of the guys here are up at uh 4 a.m to start their work to get everything finished not us though we're (laughs) sleeping in as much as we can (laughs) gotta gotta get them 13 hours (laughs) beauty sleep yeah we're essentially koala bears i think (laughs) also tell stories yeah, and that's Our the brains same. are equally smooth. Yeah, and that's to say nothing about the chlamydia. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off to a flying start. Uh, this week on the podcast, we're we're dealing with one of the classics of uh, Irish literature. Uh, we're dealing with uh, the Sons of Turin, told by uh, the lovely uh, Miss Leanne. Uh, and tell me, uh, had you heard of the story before? I had, yeah. It's one of the three great sorrows of storytelling, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's probably the kind of sad black sheep of that <laughs> particular trio because I don't think many people tell it that much. No, well, it's it's kind of it's well, it's it's long, obviously, so it's it's tough to tell it uh, on a tour. There's a lot of background characters that some of the some of the listeners mightn't be aware of. There is, of course, uh, Lou. The god of, uh, well, as much as you can use the word god <laughs> in the Irish context, uh, we'll say the guy that is most associated with the with light and crafts, and uh, his father Cian, of course, who is um, uh, the tragic figure that gets everything started. Who you might know from um, the tale of of Balor, and then there's uh, the sons of of Turin who come out of uh, Dun Turin. Um, do you tell this one yourself? I don't particularly go for this one. I don't think I tell most any of the great sorrows that much on my tours. Right. Yeah. Um, the Sons of Turin. Yeah, it's kind of the world's most tragic fetch quest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very very long. There's a lot of sort of episodes to it, so it can be hard to keep yes. audiences engaged. Yes. So you go there, you get that thing, and then you get your experience points. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure it would do very well in the Steam marketplace. No, no, I don't think so either. Um, but there's, uh, there's, uh, it's obviously it's reflecting the Odyssey and that kind of thing and mm. uh, those kind of tragic, uh, hero journeys, which we've got a few of. Um, why don't you tell the listeners about the this this term, the the three great sorrows? So the three great sorrows of our storytelling are three of our ancient myths and legends that are just that little bit tragic yes. <laughs> so we've got the sons of Turin which you're about to hear today of course but there's also ones that the listeners might be more familiar with 
there's the Children of Lear, and there's Deirdre of the Sorrows. Both of them are a little tidier, I think. They're a little yes. easier to kind of form into something to tell people. Yeah, the, I think with the Children of Lear, uh, there's a lot more uh, resolution. Yeah, it's not a, it's not necessarily a happy end for the children, but uh, they're no longer swans, and they they're living as, as swans towards the end of their life. They're living a reasonably comfortable life as <laughs> swans. <so laughs> I look they at, can still speak. They yeah, still <laughs> and sing apparently, which is odd because I've never heard a swan sing. Swans do not have nice voices usually. No, no, it's more of a honk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, I see some of the swans in the Liffey when I go to work and I'm like, I would not like to be sitting in that cold water today. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Children of Lear, there's uh, much more of a sense of uh, that's resolved now. There was not a happy ending because this is Irish myth and legend, but a, a resolution in it. And uh, the other one, then the the children of Lear, the sons of Turin, and Deirdre of the Sorrows, and Deirdre of the Sorrows. Now that is that is uh, balls to the wall tragedy. Oh, that she is, just has. It's just the story of one woman having the worst possible life. life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so, guess it's got the attractive tragic romance to it, which is maybe what makes yeah. it so compelling as well. But. Oh my God, she does not have a good time. But a bit like Romeo and Juliet, you you're kind of you're certain that at the start of Deirdre of the Sorrows, even if you just hear the name, that it's going to end badly for her. Oh yeah, you're there's no no hope that anything's going to end well for anyone in that story. Whereas I think with the with the sons of Turin, you you get invested in uh, in the boys. Uh, they're a kind of anti-hero in in a sense. Uh, that um, they've done something very bad but and they are going to be punished for it. But you think that, oh, they've gone to an awful lot of effort. So maybe uh, maybe at the end of the day, they will uh, win and survive and be, you know, at least not live ha- happily ever after, but at be least somewhat be somewhat redeemed at the end. Yeah, get some resolution out of it. So, without uh, any further ado, uh, here comes uh, Miss Leanne Bickerdyke with the Sons of Turin. Long ago, when the people of Dana ruled over the land of Ireland, they lived in constant persecution from their arch-enemies named the Fomorans. The Fomorans imposed cruel taxes upon the people of the land. For all the bread that they baked, for every piece of corn they grinded, every ounce of gold they made, a heavy tax was put on all the men, women and children. And if any man could not or would not pay his price... His nose was cut off for not complying. Under the harsh thumb of the Fomorians, the whole country hoped for a band of fine warriors to lead them in the battle against their oppressors. Now before this hardship happened, one of the lords of Dana named Cian had married a woman named Ethlin, 
who happened to be the daughter of Balor, king of the Fomorans. Together they had a son named Lu Lom Fother, Lu of the Long Arm, who grew up to be one of Ireland's strongest heroes. It was said that Lu's physical strength knew no bounds, his beauty no limits, making him one of Ireland's most powerful warriors. And so, led by their fearless leader Lu, the people of Dana decided to fight back against the Fomorian oppressors. The Dana folk assembled upon the hill of Ishnoch, which is on the western side of Tara in the county of Mead, to meet the Fomorians head-on in battle. As both armies began to descend upon the battleground, Lu began to realise this might be a tougher fight than what he had thought. So he decided to summon up the best warrior that Ireland had to offer, his own father, Cian. As Cian approached the hill, he was met by the three sons of Turin, who had an ancient feud with Cian and his family for many, many hundreds of years. Cian decided that in order to protect himself, he should transform into a great wild boar and disguise himself for the brothers. But it was to his own demise. They travelled in battle across the north of Ireland before the brothers caught up to poor Cian. They stoned him to death on the ground before them. In order to hide his body, they buried him under the rocks below and surrounded him. The battle went on for many days and many nights and when it was finished, Lou began to realise that he could not find his father at the site of the battlegrounds and come to think of it, no one had seen him at all during the fight. Lou and the army of Dana travelled across Ireland in search of his father, Cian. And after a long search, they stopped at the plain of Mortumni, where Lou, upon stopping, began to hear the rocks whisper to him, telling him of his father's dead body, which now lies beneath the rocks of his feet. From deep below the earth, it whispered the names of the three men who'd killed his father. The army and Lou made their way back to Tower for the great feast and celebrated by the High King of Ireland. There he confessed to all present that his father had been killed and the three men, the three sons, were currently sat feasting and drinking within the High King's chambers. Now the three sons of Turin, they began to realise that there was no way out. But they were surprised at what was suggested for their penance of killing Cian. They were told that they must accept and complete for Lou an Eric, more commonly known as a great and difficult quest of which they quickly accepted, for it meant that they would not be slain on the ground of which they stood. The Eric set upon by Lou for the three men were as follows. To find and collect three apples of his parodies, the magic pig skin of the King of Greece, the magic spear from the King of Persia, the chariot and horse from the King of Sicily, the seven pigs of Esau, the hound of the King of Norway, the magic cooking spit of Freeshire, and the three shouts on the hill of Mokken. So essentially, a lot. For this excessively large and difficult Eric to achieve, the three sons of Turin asked Lou to borrow the boat of Mananon MacLear, god of the sea, in order to travel across the vast oceans which Lou obliged. And the three set out for Europe, off across the harbour at the River Boyne. Upon these they left for the cities of the world. Now, after much hardship, bloodshed, death, betrayal, the three sons of Turin managed to collect all items requested for the Eric by pretty much essentially blagging their way into every kingdom all over the world by singing songs or reciting poetry, except for the three shouts from the hill of Mocken, as it is sacred to the people upon the hill that no one should ever shout. Now, Lou 
Lamfather, he desired to know how the sons of Turin had fared with this quest and how they were getting on and finding all of the objects required of them. In conjuring up a spell of divination, it was revealed to him. The only part of the Eric yet to be fulfilled was the three shouts upon the hill. Lou decided to put a spell of oblivion and forgetfulness. It descended down upon the sons of Turin, and they began to feel a yearning, a passion to return home to the native land of Erin. They forgot, therefore, that a portion of the Eric was still yet to be collected. And they set sail on the boat of Mananon with their treasures on board, back for Ireland. The three sons arrived home at the harbour of Benader. Falling on their knees, they kissed the green soil of Ireland, greeted by the fellow countryman and the king of Ireland himself. But they soon realised, Lou, well, he was nowhere to be seen. He had long left before the three sons have arrived. He has gone to Tara to avoid us, having heard that we were coming with our treasures and weapons of war, said the sons. Word was sent to Lou at Tara that the sons were at Benader and that the Eric with them. So it was done. And when Lude had tidings that the High King had the Eric, he returned to Benader himself. You see, Lou said, Truly there is here the price of any man's death, but the Eric is not complete. Where is the tree shouts upon the hill of Moken? With their heads held down and in great sadness, they did not begin to realise how they could forget something of great importance. And so the men again, they set sail for sea. They arrived at the hill and the keepers of the land, the three sons, Con, Hugh and Cork, the three sons came out to meet the mighty warriors. What is here you seek? said the sons. They told him that they had been here to lay upon an Eric to give three shouts upon the hill. Well, said the sons, it had been laid upon me to prevent such a thing. Then Brian, one of the sons of Turin, and Mocken, one of the sons of the hill, they drew swords and began to fight. Fight like that at two wild lions or crazed bulls, until at last Brian drove a sword up through the troth of Mocken, and there, upon the hill, he died. And with that, the sons of Turin began a fierce and epic battle. Long and sore was the strife that they had fought, so much blood, that the blood fell red from the grass under their feet. But in the end, the sons of Mocken fell, and over them the sons of Turin swooned in victory. They rose to their knees and the three brothers, while the blood streaming down to their feet, they screamed like high horses upon the hill and the last of the Eric was fulfilled. They bound up their wounds and placed themselves on the boat. Slowly and painfully it set out for Sea of Ireland. The three brothers sailed by the hall of Dunturin where their father and forefathers had lived buried for thousands of years before. Weak and tired from the battle, the three brothers, they called out to their father across the sea. And as he listened, he agreed to bring the news of the final Eric for his dying children to Lou. Turin brought the news of his sons to Lou, who now back in his natural domain in the hill of Tara, who in hearing this became silent. And the knowledge that the Eric had now been completed. I have forgiven them, said Lou, but thy sons must die, for I have shown to them more mercy than they showed to Keen, my father. The royal bards of Ireland and the old men in chimney corners shall tell stories of the epic tales and glory, if the land of Ireland shall endure.
Shuren bowed his head and went sorrowfully back to Dunshuren, told of sons of the words that Lou had said, and with that the breath of life departed from the sons of Turin, and they died together. And Turin died also, for his heart was broken from grief. His daughter buried them in one grave, so that they could all be reunited, either in this life or the next. Well, I think that we can safely say that that was as tragic a story as it being one of the stories a storytelling would have you believe. Yeah, you become so invested in their in their grand adventure, and uh, at the end of the day, they just die. They just they just die, and their dad like, dies, and their dad dies as well. <laughs> it's one of those things. I think. Um, not to immediately derail us off topic, but um, <laughs> um, in the the musical Hades Town, um, right. which is about Orpheus and Eurydice, another yeah. big tragic story. There's yeah. a, there's a line in it where they're like, uh, "We tell it, we tell these stories like tragic stories again and again, as if yeah. they might turn out this time." Right. And I think that's something that kind of holds true with the Sons of Turin, where it's one of these things where they, they keep do it, they keep kind of persevering, yeah. they do like loads of things they do yeah. way more than should ever have been expected them still just die so it's almost sisyphean you know it's like the uh, the when sisyphus is is at the uh, top of the hill you're thinking this time exactly this, yeah. this time <laughs> finally they'll I, do it it won't roll back down the hill but, no. but unfortunately you know the story's written and they just they always will just end up dead yeah like in Romeo and Juliet where they tell you in the in the first minute that exactly everyone yeah. is going to die uh, whether you like it or not and then you're like oh it's so sad <laughs> I didn't know they'd actually die <laughs> um so uh I suppose being uh, the leader of Ireland as Lou Lawfather uh, was there's a kind of political dynamic to it in the sense that if the leader of Ireland lets uh, three guys get away with killing his father, then he is going to let everyone get away with anything. Yeah. So. And that is kind of part, like, I mean, the, the kingship in this era of Ireland is kind of a tenuous thing. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, thinking about it in sort of the chronology of everything, um, this isn't terribly long after Brez was the king of Ireland. Yeah. And he essentially let the Formorians walk right all over and mm -hmm. yeah. subjugate everyone. Yeah, that's that's very true. That You know, Ireland needed uh, a strong king. But in the sense that you'll, you never actually know if he wants them to die out of resentment if he if he ever actually you'll never actually know if he forgave them yeah. for the death of his father or not because um because he, they would have had to die regardless yeah he's sort of i think he's definitely acting a little bit more vindictive in it yeah. than this there's see the at the end you kind of assume 
Because in any other story, you'd assume, oh, he will kind of see the error of his ways or something, yeah. and he'll go, oh, look what you've done, and his mind will be changed. But no, there's just something very resolute about it. There, yeah. Irish stubbornness. There's something like Game of Thrones final season about it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Lou, big hero, he has that funny story where he comes to Tara and he asks them, do you have someone that does this job or this job or this job and then but do you have someone that will do all the jobs and they say no well i'm someone who can do every job and he has that fun story um but then i you know i imagine it like the daenerys was mad all along kind of people <laughs> going well he did stab his grandfather in the eye yeah, yeah. he did knock his grandfather's eye right out of his head yeah. And cause it to destroy his grandfather's troops. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's one of those things where it kind of shows a a different side to Lou than I guess you get yeah. in these other stories. Like, because in the lead up to Moitura and everything, it's all about look at Lou. He's this like young, incredible hero. He's gonna just lead everyone into victory. How amazing yeah. is he? But then in the Sons of Turin, he's kind of the villain. Like he's yeah. just and. You get a sense of why he's doing it. Obviously, yeah. like the the sons of Turin themselves are villains, kind of. They they yeah. murdered his father, but no, he's still like at the end of it. You're left with the feeling that Lou's the one who's kind of gone too far. Yeah, it's a and it's a sophisticated tragedy. It's all it's it's Greek like almost. Yeah, yeah. there's no kind of there's no sort of immediate person who kind of strikes you as this is the good guy. This is the protagonist. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone has a flaw to them. Everyone's doing something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do quite enjoy the scene, though, where, you know, the stones are talking to him. And the stones are going, they killed your dad. <laughs> I imagine that scene in that, uh, what, everything, you know, everything all, everywhere, all at once. Yes, yes, of course. Where the two stones with the googly eyes. I just imagine those stones going, they killed your dad. Murdered your father. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and maybe that's a, an entryway into madness as well, because grief can do strange things to people. And, you know, that like he was mad and then the stones started to talk to him. But I, I think I sometimes think like that. And then I realize, oh, no, this is a this is a race of super magical beings who yeah. arrived on flying boats. In so. this case, the, the stones were actually literally talking to so, him. Yeah, it's like when, you know, when Jewish scholars of the Bible tell you, no, that was just a talking snake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no metaphor here. It's yeah. literally just a talking snake. <laughs> I mean, there's that thing with the two a day. You get it in some tellings of Moitura and everything where it's like Ireland itself and the land itself kind of has a consciousness and can support or yes. be against people. Because in, um, in the battle, when Lou is throwing the stone and everything, right. in some versions I've seen it where they make it so that the land itself contracts to okay. allow the, the stone to go like further and catch Valor's eye. Right. And it's this idea that the land itself is rebelling against oh, wow. what it sees as a subjugator. Yeah. And so I guess this could be a similar sort of thing that two yeah. done and Lou especially kind of just has this relationship where it's yeah. kind of and maybe the idea that he's like the rightful king or whatever. And there's yeah, and there's some ideas there yeah, that the, the land is uh, variously different goddesses and uh, mm. again Kerry Mann will tell you about the Paps of Anu <laughs> and it does look like the outline of a woman you know but maybe it's like 
a cloud looks like a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> because you you think wolf, and then yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's similar to like the the Leah Fall at Tara screaming when the rightful king of Ireland touches yes. it and everything. It's yeah. Just this kind of maybe a kind of lingering sense of when Ireland's religion would have been more kind of animistic and would have had yeah. stones and trees and things having their own spirits and abilities yeah. to talk to people. Almost Shinto yeah. in the in the understanding of the land. Yeah. And that's late you see that later on as well with the hungry grass. Yes. That the the act of walking along the grass makes you hunger and thirst until you die. Yeah. Or the the uh, the Alplucra, just falling in, falling asleep beside a stream. The Alplucra. don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> bad idea. Bad, bad idea. Maybe that's a warning against cholera or something. I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> apparently, whatever it is, you can cure it with salted beef. Just just eat lots of very salty beef. Yeah. And it doesn't sound pleasant because it will still wriggle out of your throat or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, yeah, so th- there are Lou, master of all crafts. Some people call him uh, the sun god. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you stand on the whole? Are the two Hadedanan gods or not? I think it's kind of hard to draw a firm line. I'm not sure if they would have been worshipped in the same way that we'd have considered worship of gods nowadays. But they're still, they're revered figures, they're magical figures. I think your comparison to Shinto is pretty accurate, where um, in Shinto, in Japan, there's this idea that there's like this kind of spirit world that kind of overlays our own world. And the spirits there, you can leave offerings to them, but you might always do that. Sometimes they're villainous, sometimes they're helpful, but it's kind of just like an alternate group that are kind of supernatural who mightn't be like you can practice Shinto while still being an atheist yes and I think this might be a similar kind of situation yeah um I'm not sure do you know if we have any um hit like uh history or evidence of like a cult of Lou um no well there's continental evidence but Mm. um I don't know of any uh yeah, any sites well there, there are sites dedicated to Lou but uh, a site I don't know of any site that indicates yeah. uh, the uh, the rituals or the processions of a religion mm. we'll say in the same way but the ironic thing about that in Ireland is that there are multiple sites in uh, Connacht and Louth that indicate the ritual practice of religion dedica- dedicated to Maeve from yes. the Tawn who yeah. had been turned almost entirely into what people believe for a while to be a fully historical figure. Yeah. But no, she's almost certainly some sort of earth goddess or something. Yeah. yeah. We get that in the fact that she takes on so many husbands, which might be like the um, the king ritualistically marrying the land. Yeah. And when we went to Rathcrohan, uh, and the the great uh, guides there told us that, you know, really the only thing in that period of time that could have motivated the people to move this amount of earth and is religion. Yeah, fully 100%. Yeah, it, there was no way that you'd give up much that much time of uh, your life, which was hard living and which was substi- subsistence living, uh, if it wasn't for religion. And again, yeah. that's, that's a Maeve site. I think that's kind of one of the things that maybe 
differentiates our mythology from, say, Greek mythology or whatever, where in Greek mythology, a lot of the heroes and everything, they're, they're, they're demigods, they're connected yeah. to the gods, but they're not the gods themselves. The gods have their part to play in the myths, but they're often not the clear protagonist in the yes. way that Perseus or Odysseus is. Whereas yeah. here, lose the protagonist of plenty <laughs> yeah, of myths. Yeah. <laughs> and Angus is just mucking about just in every... doing yeah. whatever he wants. Yeah. Here, here's a spear. Use it to jump over things. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the thing where the mythological... Like, there are myths in the Greek tradition and everything where that are essentially like the... the what's it called, the Titanomachy, which is yeah, when they yeah, defeat yeah, the Titans yeah. and everything. That's obviously centred around the gods, but in Ireland we have a full cycle of stories dedicated oh, to what yeah. we consider the gods. Yeah, and the uh, the Grian on Orlok is the, is the only one we can really point to and go, yeah, that's definitely some form of sun worship there. Yes. Uh, but uh, the stories suggest that that's the, the Dagda's sun uh, and yes. not Lu. Uh, the sun dies during the battle with the Fomorians. The mm. sun, Mirch, I think, uh, has invaded Donegal um, in a fight with the with the Fomorians, and the battle, the whole war is over, but word hasn't reached them, and he dies yeah. uh, after the war is over. And uh, the Dagda is so sad about it that he um, that he con- constructs the temple there and sets it up to the sun. That's the propaganda from the O'Neill clan, of course. <laughs> yeah, the o- it might have been just the O'Neills happened to live there. <laughs> yes, we'll make a little myth to justify ourselves yeah. a bit more. Yeah, we like the summertime. This is this is Donegal. We don't get a lot of we sun. We get the sun three days a year. By God, we'll worship. <laughs> we just missed the medieval warm period. <laughs> Um, so uh, the the other thing I, I I will say about the the sons of Turin is the is the the sort of how symbolic the tasks are. Yes. To get three shouts, you know, from from something is, is quite interesting. That um, like at at no point does the story really. Um, I suppose it does explain in a way, but it doesn't really explain in a in a way to to the average audience how one yeah. acquires a shout. It's just sort of. I think that's kind of one of the things that makes it sort of both really obscure, but also kind of magical. And that it's like yeah. these are kind of these weird, impossible tasks that they're still yeah. able to do really easily, <laughs> but they're just everything sounds so kind of strange and yeah. mystical. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's things that are just kind of weird and ephemeral too. Yeah, and and shouting comes into a lot of Irish stories. That's just yeah, they just seem to enjoy a good shout. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, the, the what we call in Dearmouth and Grania a uh, shouty man. You, uh, I haven't heard of this one. Uh, shouty man is is a guy basically that the um, the Fenians summon every now and then when they need to get a message across, <laughs> and uh, in various stories. And shouty man is brought in in Dermot and Gronyard basically to 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 relate to Dermot, and uh, he said his voice was so loud that it was said he could be heard in three valleys. In parts of Tipperary, that's still actually how the phone system works. Yeah. 
<laughs> shouting they are in Kerry we've advanced to the uh, the tin cans and the and the string oh very good the, very good we're getting there we're yeah, getting there yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or just bouncing the um, sticking have you seen that thing you sometimes see it in uh, very rural parts where they put stick a bottle in the fence a plastic bottle into the fence I haven't no what's that I basically it uh, makes a very loud sort of reverb sound when you ah. tap it off the when so you just have to tap the wire a couple of times and then someone way way down the fence will will know what you that you that you uh, want their attention like automated yodeling yes <laughs> oh we couldn't be yodeling in Ireland <laughs> No, 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 and uh, the sheer embarrassment of it would kill us. And the and the begrudgery, be like, oh, he's a very good yodeler. Ah, he is, but ah, he's a desperate whore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on that, on that, a rather surreal note. I was Paddy Holly. I was joined by the marvelous Brendan Atkins, and you were very, very good listeners. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Remember the best way to support us is by liking, subscribing and sharing with a friend.